Uh, you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week, we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube for our channels, CHHA, 1610 AM, and Greg Fenden. Listen to podcasts of each radio show at either of SoundCloud.com or iTunes podcasts by searching under Mediation Station in the Arts section. Follow us on our Twitter account, at Fenton Mediation. Our topic tonight is called Domestic Violence and Abuse Before and After Separation. Our visitor will be Desmond Ellis. And he'll be with us shortly. Laura Tarcia is here tonight to co-host. It's been a little while for her. How are you doing, Laura? I'm very well, thank you, Greg. How are you? I'm okay. Looking forward to the program tonight. The Absolutely, show. same. Yeah. So as I mentioned, our topic tonight is titled Domestic Violence and Abuse Before and After Separation. And with us is Desmond Ellis. Welcome to the program, Desmond. Pleased to be here. Okay. So how about you share a little bit of information about your professional background, your involvement? Well, I think for some time I've been involved in studying violence and abuse associated with separation and divorce. And the major focus of my research has been what happens when people attempt to settle problems associated with separation and divorce. Some hire lawyers to negotiate for them, some go to court, and some try to negotiate it themselves, and we look at the consequences of, the do- of going to one place or the other to settle conflicts, many of which involve domestic violence. In fact, some research suggests that between 80, 40 and 80 percent of couples who go to contested proceedings in family courts and mediation bring domestic violence with them to those proceedings. So it's a serious business to try to do what we can to do research with a view to not so much predicting but preventing domestic violence before and after separation. That is what I've been doing research on for quite a few years now. What other things though are you involved? Because I know you have a varied professional world. Well, Apart from for my publications and research, all of them have focused on domestic violence and its prevention. But the scenes have varied. So the most recent research that, are, that we are doing, um, three of us, involves uh, steps taken by wives who have been abused to seek safety. Some have gone to shelters, some have called the police, some have had their spouses arrested, does it matter what they do? And we found surprisingly, and it's counterintuitive, you wouldn't expect it, that women who seek safety by reducing contact between themselves and their former partners who abuse them actually invite retaliatory violence depending on what step safety steps they take. So, so we'll talk more about that as we navigate through the conversation. and. It you know, deepen and expand this. What do you value about the different things that you do professionally? 
well, the only real thing I value is whether it makes any difference at all to the real world. I mean, we professors work in an area where our own careers depend upon publications in journals. What has that got to do with real life? This is a world made up of academics mm -hmm. whose careers depend upon the quality of the publications and the number of publications they write. My main concern is, no, I don't ignore that part of it, but what I try to do always is make what I do have some relevance to the everyday lives of the women who are being abused. Well, isn't one of the arguments about research and papers and data that's collected and then uh, recommendations is that they end up sitting on a shelf somewhere and many of those recommendations are never actually applied into society? Well, that's only partly true. All the arrest effects, that, uh, the research that has been done on the effects of arrest on domestic violence have proved to be very valuable. The earlier research wasn't so clear-headed or give as clear directions, but more recent research has indicated with this simple method, arrest works. Well, doesn't it increase retaliatory violence? They have found it not to be the case. So arrest works, warrantless arrests work, hiding somewhere where he doesn't know where you are, that work. Can I think of anything else that works? Not without some hope of retaliatory violence or some expectation of it. So in this particular time, many of the publications I've written, books, articles, research reports, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone took much notice of them as a practical matter. This time, I happened to write a research report which was of interest to the federal government because they were in the second reading of a bill. Probably everyone knows that bills become acts and the politicians are discussing whether... What's that bill? Bill C-78, an act to amend the Divorce Act, and a number of other acts. So this is a very significant bill for family life generally, especially when there is domestic violence. It's a really significant event. This Divorce Act has been in place since 1986, the current one. So which, which reflected the period of time and when it was prepared, put together, and then put out there. Yes, partly reflected. All these questions have qualifications because it's still the same. There are parts of that act which are still in existence right. which are not, should not be there if safety is our primary concern. If something else is our primary concern, that's okay. But if safety is our primary concern, they should not be there. But this time, it just happened to be while they were discussing the bill, the politicians, I happened to complete a report and I sent it in and maybe somebody had took it into account because then I was invited to participate in an advisory, an advisory group on Bill C-78. But this was one of those cases where something I did made a difference, at least to that extent. Which is also to be further developed, because you're going to be an active member of that advisory committee. Yes, I don't, they haven't, uh, haven't had... Uh, right, no, it hasn't, but, uh, but I yeah, will be. it's going to happen, right. it's to be thing. That's right. Desmond, why do you focus much of your work on the lived experiences of people as to um, domestic violence and abuse? Well, it, I've always focused on the lived experience of people that for much of the time I was a professor at the uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, I studied violence in prisons. 
and my main concern was the everyday lived lives of prisoners. So similarly, since 1993, I've really been focusing on this, uh, violence associated with dissolution. And my concerns have been, what does it mean as a practical matter for persons who are going through these experiences? So it becomes very concrete. Mm -hmm. So a woman may be given advice, you have to buy a guard dog, you have to put uh, sensors in the ground, you have to change your locks, you have to do this, that and the other. In the meantime, her concerns with her children are, how am I going to get food, housing, there are lots of other concerns. And so when we as safety planners give advice to women, we should keep in mind that they have agency too. They have their lived lives. Safety is one of a number of concerns, including feeding my children, finding clothes for them, finding shelter. So if you start with that point of view, you get away from just the significance of findings on paper. Well, you've got to make it into a practical connection for people for it to resonate in some form because it will, otherwise it's just a bunch of words. And how does that relate to my lived experience? That's some researcher or academic has organized something, done some questions, interviewed people, focus groups, whatever. So how does it connect in my real experience as a person who's you know, experiencing intimate partner violence? Yes, I, and York has research centers. I belong to the Lamarche Center at York, and this is the kind of work they all do. Bullying indigenous peoples and their lives, the lives of children who have problems of one kind or another. It's very concrete and grounded in everyday lives of people. And so my research is, and always was. What is it about your research work, though? Because you've taken a conscious decision to focus in the area of domestic violence and abuse. Why that? I mean, that's a profound area of people's lived experiences. It's not a, quote, a happy place to do research, per se. No, um, it isn't, but it's an aspiration. If prevention is an aspiration, that's what I aspire to. Preventing violence as a means of controlling, settling conflicts. There are always better alternatives to violence. And so, as an aspiration, what I do is aim at prevention. And so when it seems concretely that you give risk assessment instruments, this is what professionals do, and you get caught up in prediction, I think you get diverted from prevention. Because there are some things you can predict, but you can't prevent. What is the difference, because we, we are touching on domestic violence, domestic abuse, what is the difference uh, between the domestic violence and domestic abuse? Well, domestic violence is, there are a number of words that are used to describe the same thing. Domestic violence is one, there's intimate partner violence, male partner violence, violence against women, a whole raft of names. So domestic violence means family violence. violence too, right? I mean, family violence yeah. is violence in a context, and the context is the domestic one. It involves families. Usually, it refers to physical violence. If it's physical violence, it's criminal violence. Abuse refers to psychological abuse, but that term is falling into disuse a little bit because in the new definition of family violence, they don't use domestic violence; they're using family violence they replaced abuse with a pattern of coercive control, I'm quoting. That has replaced 
what used to be called psychological abuse. When psychological abuse is still used, they differentiate between coercive control and psychological abuse. Psychological abuse does not involve in eliciting fear in the woman. Coercive control usually does, by definition. So coercive control is a type of control in which coercive is involved. Coercion is involved as a threat. Psychological abuse, safety does not have to be involved. It's hurtful and harmful, but fear does not have to be involved. You know, when someone's going through those experiences, whether it's this or that, do they, do they really appreciate the difference? They're going through their lived experience, and it's a can be traumatic for them. Yes, it is, but the framers of the legislation have been influenced by a professor called Evan Stark, who has been writing since 1995, and he's been very influential in, in family law in England, in Queensland, in Australia, in Scotland, Ireland, and now Canada. So this person has been arguing for a long time that we've ignored what is most harmful to women's liberty, and that is coercive control. It deprives women of her women of their agency and of their liberty. And he is saying, why don't all of you wake up and take that into account instead of only concentrating on safety? So he is elevating women's agency and autonomy above, now he may want to qualify that himself, but I'm not persuaded by his qualification, that he's really interested in safety, but he's really more interested. So he would like shelters to include women who are coercively controlled. There are only a few beds in shelters. They need more beds. They save the beds for women who've been physically in danger. So the coercively controlled, where do they go for shelters? Evan Stark says shelters should change their mandate to include the liberty of women, their agency. If they feel that their autonomy is threatened, their agency is threatened, they ought to be permitted to go into shelters. So it has very concrete, concrete implications. Going back to your question then, coercive control and abuse are separate things. Both of them are separate from physical violence in the new legislation. So mediators who have been trained to ask questions about this, that or the other, they now have to have some training in a pattern of coercive control. If you think pattern, you think, well, pattern is something predictable. If you look at Google it or look in a dictionary, they usually talk about floral designs on vases and so on, where you see the different mm -hmm. patterns. Well, a number of cases, real lived world experiences of cases, it's unpredictable. It's like a huge footstep of a giant, but you never know whether it's going to stamp and land on your face. And the women are in terror because of the uncertainty of it. Well, are they going to take this into account as a pattern, or is it only pattern means repeated. So you see how complicated it gets. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you know in your world too, uh, with uh, the programs that you do with uh, dispute resolution and when uh, educating and informing individuals who want to gravitate to mediation, we deal with worlds of unexpected, unexpected moments and that's a, a major skill that I would believe mediators need to have to intersect with their moments the best way they can help support the people they're working with. How can you, with unexpected, that's not a routine, or it's random, that it can be any moment. And so 
much of the behavior that's uncalled for by certain individuals that abuses someone, I, I would think that a skill set is to be able to deal with the unexpected. Well, women who have been abused physically and psychologically, this really gets into the part that we haven't talked about before. After all, this is also before separation. How do they get out of it? And Catherine Kirkwood in England, and subsequently I got a model of hers, you think of two V-shaped springs coming down to the bottom like in a funnel, and when women hit the bottom of that, it's abuse, physical, coercive control, and then at some point when they're right close to the bottom, they or their children, they find the strength somewhere to make a change. They make a decision at some point and they start spiraling out and the out of the end of it is divorce or separation. So you have a spiral coming down, something happens at the bottom. He actually pushed my child down the steps. He shot at me. I was sitting there and the bullet just grazed my head. And when that happened, I decided. And, there, and I'm now talking from ethnographies of women. These are lived lives of women. Something happened and the first steps were taken. It may have been a call just to a friend who said something. It may have been a call to an advocate who said something. It could, it could have been the bullet that missed, that made the call, that made them do things. And so you have a spiraling out to separation. It would be nice to say, well, surely after that separation you've solved the problem. You've had this together all the time. You were right at the bottom. This painful journey out, you're in the clear. And we all know now you're not. Which we'll talk about because that's why uh, the title is Before and After, because there is a distinct difference that can and does happen many times. Joni, did you want to say something? Well, wow, I think you're reading my mind, Greg. Um, I, was, I'm, I was very interested uh, to hear from you just now that arrest makes a difference. And it makes me wonder about, you're also saying that safety is one of the issues, but it's not the only issue. And I'm wondering if what often happens after an arrest where the, the man can lose his job or isn't around to do to make a living or do things for for the family or whatever does that have a a negative effect or is that something that gets balanced out well that would have an effect on the likelihood that she will report the abuse to a police officer in the first place yeah. it, it, it affects the reporting and she may know subsequently in the short run may solve the problem for a few days, but then if he loses his job, our income will suffer, and perhaps she may really love him. So the dynamic is complicated if you, if you understand this individual's situation and where she is and what her relationship is. And there are whole books written to who looks after women who really love their abusers and want to go back. Well, the whole trend is don't, but I get a bit nervous telling women what to do, just in that case. This individual woman, am I going to tell her, don't go back, or am I going to tell her, go back? So in any individual case, you can give advice as to what is and what will promote her safety. Complication now is, under the family, definitely change definition of family violence, you have to simultaneously consider her safety, 
and her agency, her autonomy. So your question again was what? What about the, the consequences of arrest, adverse yeah. consequences of arrest? Yeah. Those are taken into account when she decides, taking everything into account, never mind all the advocates and planners and all that, in my situation, taking everything account, I don't want him arrested. Taking everything into account, when I, I'll go to court, but I won't give evidence. But now you must give evidence. Mm. If somebody is telling you you must give evidence, you're destroying and undermining her agency. And there's a whole raft of literature on when they go out in the community. Community agencies designed to help them. There are now reports that those also undermine the agency of women. So mm -hmm. people who, who really believe in women's autonomy and agency have this view of safety on the one hand, but what about women's agency on the other? Criminal charges, though, are not laid by the individual. They're laid by the state, the police. So when so the police are responding to a 911 call and they show up, it's their determination on whether to lay a charge or not. Maybe they factor in whether the person will be prepared to say, but I don't think they really do an assessment on the uh, ability or the capacity of the individual to, you know, follow through. Yeah, they've hurt me. And then afterwards, maybe they'll recant on that. No, the, the, the police are there to enforce the, the law, and they use their discretion to do that. I'm not sure that the woman thinks of all the possibilities at that particular no. time. What the police will do immediately is separate them. Then they may or may not arrest, or they may order one person away and the other to stay, mm -hmm. depending on... There are, so there are lots of things going on. But the studies I mentioned simply find that arrest, there's no repeat violence in the case of following arrest. They don't take into account what the women did to promote their own safety, though, in these studies. So that's another thing that I'm talking about. Once we found out that there's abuse and we, we recommend a certain pattern of action to women with the agreement in whatever the plan is, once they get back to the real world, they take a whole bunch of things into account. They show agency, they understand their situations, and they rank order safety versus food versus shelter and a whole bunch of things. Well, there's been a real consequence to the behavior when, when the person is arrested. Yes, for her and for the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So unless the only safety for sure is a life sentence, then she's safe the duration of the sentence. Regarding the, the research that you've been doing recently about domestic violence and abuse, especially um, around separation in intimate relationship, uh, what's, what's the most recent research that you're currently involved regarding uh, the intimate partner in the domestic relationships? Well, the, the most recent ins uh, research in relation to mediation is the necessity of screening for coercive control, which we've not been doing. Uh, they've never entered into major. I don't think they've entered into mediation discourse anyway, but it will now mm -hmm. because coercive control has suddenly become a definition of family violence. So there's that, that part of it is recent. The other part of it is recent is, well, all right, we found out that there is a case of domestic violence and if you are going to mediation and a mediator was to give advice as to what a woman, the steps she could take to promote her own safety, what is she going to say? 
and the most recent research, that includes our research, is the, the most recent done uh, to date, is the advice needs to be, in giving that advice, mediators should consider not only whether it will promote safety, but whether it will promote retaliatory violence. And the study we're doing, we've taken each of these things, you're separated, what did he do? You had a protection order, what did he do? You went to a shelter, what did he do? Oh, you didn't go to a shelter, you went to your mom and dad's or relatives, what did he do? So after you called the police, what did he do? And the options are, what he did was, he abused me physically, or he abused me coercive controlling tips. So we've slipped over from, in the most recent research, aimed at prevention, what sorts of interventions suggested by advocates or shelters or mediators or lawyers elicit retaliatory violence as compared with safety. Mm -hmm. And if we look, and I, like I counted, the last time I counted, about a week ago, there were about 78 different interventions. Of those, two were found to be most effective. One is a warrantless arrest, means you've told him, I'm not arresting you this time, but I'm taking a warrant out. If it happens again, you are nicked, you are arrested. And relocation. There's a huge relocation section in the new bill C-78, which facilitates it. Go to a safe, a safe place and stay there. But again, sometimes, he will find out where they are. You, you, so you really have to be careful about them. And that's a li little bit complicated too when there's a child involved because the other parent does have a right to access or have time to see that child? Correct. Now, let's suppose he has abused her in the past. I, the usual term is past history of violence, which is an that, that doesn't language doesn't make sense. Better to say historical, past history is redundant. Well, so it implies like it's in the past and it's not part of the present no, either. No, but history is always in the past. So historical violence is a, a good predictor of continuing yeah. violence. But what was your question again? I, was, I forgot. What well, when, a, when someone's victimized and then the police get involved or the state and then there's a, let's say, a restraining order or no contact order. And then the uh, other parent is, the, you know, they're left out of it. They have a right under family law to access the child. Well, actually, the children have a right. He doesn't or she doesn't. The children have a right to be accessed by both parents, to have the care and control by both parents. And he is only exercising that right. She, taking everything into account, has determined my, the safety of my children way more heavily than his rights. I'm giving a, a, just an example of what she may be thinking, where the safety of her children is concerned. Suppose she is in an environment, and most environments are like this, most jurisdictions, where there is a maximum contact principle involved. There is a general trend by judges in favor of shared or joint cust residential custody. What you can't mean that this person has historically been violent against this woman physically and has abused her as well and you're saying and awarding shared custody to this person or unsupervised access to this person yes that is the trend don't you know your honor that 
when a woman is abused and child children become aware of it there is lasting damage to children not all children children have agency too we tend to forget that some children are very resilient have agency adapt do different things but other children are affected terribly by the abuse they've witnessed against their mum and you're awarding shared custody in this case or unsupervised access in this case your honor this doesn't seem fair to me that's my ruling the maximum contact pr pr principle is written into the divorce act that has not changed under bill c78 but just to give context too about unsupervised or supervised is when there's another party present with the parent right in order to provide a space for that parent to be accessing or having parenting time with the child or children. Yeah, it could be a police station, it could be a public right. place, or there are special access centers set up. Just for the benefit of the listener to yeah, no, understand some of the concepts that we're it. sharing. Yeah, someone else is around to witness the exchange of children. Right. Yeah. So, with all this, with all this knowledge and research, how do you, um, how do you get this in the hands of mediators and lawyers or whatever professionals who would actually have contact with um, with the women or the men who have suffered domestic violence? Well, I've been invited to present at conferences, uh, and I go to conferences, and I write articles about what happened. In this case, it was just a complete fluke that right in the middle of, of, of something, I, we did the research. And the research supports what the federal government support the federal government's definition and wisdom in including a pattern of coercive control in the definition of coercive violence because every one of the 49 women we studied, shelter women, reported coercive control before, everyone reported coercive control after, and almost all of those reported mental treatment, physical violence, three or four really adverse circumstances post-separation. So I think that the, the federal government received very good advice from someone to include coercive control in its definition of family violence. Singularly, it's a very good thing that they did. So does that pertain to married relationships under federal statute? Because yes, divorce, act, divorce Act is that's marriage. Right. That's, uh, that seems and that's limited to that. That's federal jurisdiction. Right. And there are many courts, Ontario Court of Justice, which is provincial jurisdiction, Correct. which has no requirement to follow under the Divorce Act. How does that then get into the system of those courts? Well, unfortunately, Ontario's legislation does follow the Divorce Act. They also believe that the child should be looked after the care and control of the children. The child has a right to be cared for and controlled by both parents. They also, in Section 24 of the, of the, of the provincial legislation is called the Children's Law Reform Act. There's a section in there, they number all these sections, and this is the one numbered section 24. Uh, they say, but if there has been domestic violence, then we should take care about that. So we, we measured that, and there is, it is reported, but it's very loose. It can be domestic violence, let's say, today, 20 years ago. There's no time limit on it and it can be against a dog or a pet or anyone in the home. I think it's a good idea to have it, 
but I think more specificity is required and sometimes time bounding. So what we find in the literature is judges make their own time, five years. Mm -hmm. Where did the five years come from? There's no evidence on that. But there is evidence saying that if someone has been abused within 30 days, and you're in a mediation case, or if you're in, 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 a, in a motions court or hearing in an Ontario Justice Court, they've been abused within 30 days, that is a very solid risk marker for subsequent violence. If the violence took place 180 days earlier, they're relatively safe. Not completely safe, but relatively safe. Forget about the particulars. All that is being asserted is, is the, is the violence relatively recent? And if so, that's a good danger signal. Getting that message, though, to the uh, attention of the court, I, I see a little bit of a struggle relative from the Superior Court, which is the federal jurisdiction, because in Ontario Courts of Justice, there's a higher percentage, proportion of individuals who are self-represented litigants, and they don't necessarily know or aware of the key points to present as part of presenting their point of view, i.e., for example, how abuse has factored into their lived experience with the relation to someone else. And many of the experiences at Emily Court, Ontario Courts of Justice, specifically in Toronto, 311 Jarvis and 47 Shepherd East, are people from non-married relationships. Common law, one-night stands, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, casual relationships. Yes, so long as it's an intimate partner relationship, I would study it, that's, that's my purview. But it's even worse than that. There is nothing about representation and the need for legal representation in the Bill C-78. Not a word. Like an advocate of some form. They don't even use the word lawyer. They use le legal advisors. But there's no mention of the, the importance of legal representation in domestic violence cases in, in Bill C-78. But if both parties are, not, are unrepresented, he can cross-examine her. He, mm -hmm. the abuser, can cross-examine her mm -hmm. in open court. The irony. Or the re and the reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I'm... For me, I, I mean, we are talking about domestic violence and we're talking in the context of separation and divorce. And you had mentioned a couple of, um, a couple of risk markers, 30 days and 180. Is separation a marker? Is separation a trigger? Well, or it's usually cited as if it is. Separation, oh, homicide, femicide, femicide, suicide. Mm -hmm. We actually went to penitentiaries to study people who had committed femicide, suicide. How can you study somebody? How can you study that he's dead? No, it's attempted. He lived. He did attempt to kill himself, but he lived. And so we studied them. And so separation in these cases, these were men who killed their female partners, it increases the risk of serious injury or femicide or femicide suicide. That is true. Ordinarily, you would think, and most people listening, I think, would think, if you're living together 24-7, surely the chances are much greater. A slip, a trap, a punch in the face, dig to the ribs, very severe pinches that really, really hurt. He's there all the time. He can do that all the time. When you're separated, obviously that's going to go down because he's not there all the time. Well, when he's there not all the time, the risk of seriously being seriously injured increases or killed. 
by about 8% they've estimated of all people who abuse their wives. These are chronically abusive, coercive, controlling partners, mainly responsible for those outcomes. Mm -hmm. First point. The second point is, yes, the slip, the pinches, the kicks, the shoves, the horrible remarks that they, they make to each other, that will go down because they're not all together at the same time. But they find their way into courts and the abusive process happens there. That's another form of abuse. Or they take out a protection order, retaliation violence follows. So this, when you take all that into account, yes, separation does increase violence, lethal violence. And remember we said, but he can't slap or kick or hit because he's not there. He's not there, but what he can do is meet you in court abuse the process, change lawyers at the last minute, do all kinds of things to postpone and reduce whatever meager income the woman has in paying for babysitters and so on. To go to motions courts, that's what we, we mm -hmm. study. Yes, it does increase. What happens with people who experience domestic violence and abuse and don't enter the family justice system? Well, I think we know very little about what happens to them in that case just as we know very little about what happens if they just over a dinner table discuss what they're going to do and don't tell everyone and do it. That mm -hmm. hasn't been studied. It needs to be studied, mm -hmm. but we, d we don't have any. We don't have any evidence. There are books written and fairly influential books about women who want to continue to live with their abusive partners because there are other things about them that they really like. And although this is downgraded, they really feel they love them as well. And anyone who downgrades that, to my view of thinking, is downgrading women's agency. She has told you that, believe her. So people make different kinds of decisions. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a lot of nerve, I think, to tell someone what to do if they're abused women and somehow you feel that your agency is more important than hers. Also, perpetrators have no agency. What do you mean a person is abusing his wife She's showing a lot of agency there, physically, but he has no agency to do anything else. He can't decide to quit. He can't decide to do this, that, or the other. And other researchers have brought this up. Human beings have agency, and when it's denied, you are denying them agency. And do, let's just be clear, too. When you say agency, and we've said it a number that word, just can you give some concise descriptive of it? Agency means, autonomy means, I am the author to some degree of my own fate. There are things I can't do, but insofar as I can, I really want to be able to say that I want to do them. I want to make that decision. Coercive control robs you of the power to make that decision. But other people in the community, advice givers, unless they are really understanding, respect the agency of human beings. They found this out with, with child development studies, too, with little children. They're now saying respect the agency of children. Children affect mums and dads as much, almost, as mums and dads affect children. So children have agency, too. I was at a community panel and forum last Thursday, which is about victims and survivors of crime. And as part of the conversation, we took questions from the crowd, from the audience members. And one of the people, a gentleman, made a comment. He said, basically, to summarize, uh, it, once a woman's hit, or, uh, one time is enough. That should be it. 
and she should leave and go away. So as the moderator, I'm there to support the panel members and also the audience members to have voice and space to. So, you know, as we're talking, it's more complicated than just say an absolute of should leave because there are so many other factors and lived experiences going on simultaneously as to let's just say why the woman is not leaving the relationship. Correct. You know, it's trying to provide a space for people to express themselves and also not marginalize or minimize the people who are actually going through those lived experiences at the same time. But I think this is why it is crucial that this type of research uh, is in the hands in, of professionals who are working and have first contact with, uh, uh, with separating couples or the, the woman in, in this particular example that you're, you're giving. And I don't feel they do. I don't feel in terms, in terms of the instruments, in terms of what screening we do today, with divorcing couples and separate or separating couples, I don't feel that we do have this access to this type of research in order for us to adequately respond and prepare and advise or coach. There, that answer and that advice is a very common one, which frightens me. Mm -hmm. When a woman goes to a lawyer and or a mediator who does not have the understanding or the training or the knowledge, um, and the first the first advice is leave which may put her at a higher risk of anything and everything following uh, absolutely so following that type of advice so i am not sure how there are some there are some trainings right now in in the field but i'm not sure how and i'm i'm not sure if if presenting necessarily to conferences is is enough no it isn't and i just want to take back a little bit of what of what you said is i think a woman comes to a shelter or a community service agency and an advocate, a woman, just listens and gives advice based on her understanding of what she's saying, respecting what she's saying. Never mind all the instruments and everything else. That has been one of the major turning points in women starting to get out of those relationships. You're not saying separate, you're listening and mm -hmm. saying, I understand what you're saying, what do you think about this, and giving some advice all the instruments and so on set aside that has been found to be very very useful to women. Mm -hmm. before they take the step to do something going to a shelter protection order they get advice from advocates who do not use instruments against them or for them right. they just listen and respond right so it's a major contribution it's a two-step process for the, for, for the women i'm studying one is first get the advice, then do the, so it's well worth women in a situation of being abused to contact women's agencies, contact advocates, family support workers, and get some advice. Uh, when I was working as a social worker in the emergency department, long, long time ago, back in the 80s and 90s, um, we were trained to let women know who came in who were abused, that their, their risk of being um, severely injured or killed went up with separation and that's why it was so important to do the planning and to be and to do it um, in a very um, thought well thought out planned way so it that's been a that idea has been around for a long long time but um, I, I wonder if people are still being trained that way 
Well, I don't see it in the mediation field, to be honest. I'm concerned in the mediation field of, of some of the advice that um, separating couples are, are, uh, are receiving. And we simply, we simply uh, some, of, some, some of the mediators are simply just reading a, a questionnaire and they check some, uh, some yeses or noes. And, and then what? Then what? What happens with, with the answers? There's, there's, they're not equipped to, to create a plan or planning or, or, or adequate advice uh, for, for these particular people. And in, the reality is that we all know what happens in the, in the court system. So if they're not going to court, or should we tell them to go to court? If they're screened out of mediation, what is their... What, is their what are their options? What is their option? Well, there's one option that's clear. Do not screen out of any given procedure until you know the procedure into which they're being screened in is safer. Do you have evidence that the procedure into which they're being screened in is safer than the one you are screening them out of, whatever the procedure is? So we have to almost close out. Is there something that you want to leave the listeners with from this conversation? Well, I think safety should be the number one principle. Women do what they can to promote their own safety, and they make those decisions in the context of a lot of other things coming into them, mums especially, mothers of children. And we have to respect the kinds of decisions we, 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 that they want to make and give them the kind of advice we think that will help them promote their own safety. Thank you very much for contributing, coming tonight, Professor Ellis. And we would welcome the, your return in a future date as to once things transpire and move along on this journey. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Laura. Thank you very much. And uh, Radio Elf. Yeah, All right. Thanks. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM.